a very strange Gemara that tells us as follows. The two happiest days of the year. What would you expect? Somebody told you the two happiest days in Judaism. What would you say? Purim would definitely be up there. Simchas Torah. Hanukkah. Shavuos. Shmini Atzeres. Chazal say... Chazal say that the two happiest days of the year are Tu B'Shvat, which can be understood, and Yom Kippur. I like that you leave it up. Tu B'Shvat, we can understand what happened on Tu B'Shvat. They have Shaduchim. Girls went out. What were they dressed in? Anybody know? They were dressed in white. All matching, correct. And they went out into the fields. And the boys came. And they found Shaduchim. Very interestingly, on Yom Kippur, we also wear white. But the attitude on Yom Kippur seems to be more serious. At least the Yom Kippurs that I've had. What's the attitude on Yom Kippur? Very solemn, very serious day. Not a day that we would expect to be one of the two greatest days on the calendar. Now, to be fair, Chazal do say that Tubav is the happier of the two. So the happiest day on the calendar is Tubav. But the second happiest day I would have expected is Purim. It's not Purim, it's not Simchas Torah. The second happiest day in the entire Jewish calendar is Yom Kippur. And the obvious question is, why? Why is Yom Kippur such a tremendous day of Simcha? And if it's such a tremendous day of Simcha, where did we go wrong? Because in our davening, it seems to be so serious, so solemn. Ashamnu, bagadnu, gazalnu. People are crying and screaming, especially at the crescendo of Yom Kippur. Right? Baruch Shein Kavayid Machusol Yolam Vayid. We're screaming it out loud. It's such a powerful day. But we don't necessarily think of it as a day of simple. Question number two. If Chazal say that the two happiest days of the year are Tubav and Yom Kippur, it must be that there's a connection between the two of them. Because it wasn't random. There's something about these two, because it doesn't say the top three, it says the top two. So what's the inner connection that exists between Tubav and Yom Kippur? Those are the two questions. A third question. Kol Nidre. Anyone know what the tefillah of Kol Nidre is about? What's it about? Correct. Kol Nidre is all the Nidarim and all the Shavuos, anything that I've said over the year that's like a binding thing. So we're saying, I've released myself from my vows. Girls, you know the Nigan? Have you ever been there for Kol Nidre? How does the tune sound? Somber, serious. Kol Nidre. It's a serious, serious song. It shouldn't be that serious a song. It's, it should sound like this. All the vows that I've, you know, it should sound like Bedikas Chametz. You know, they say like Kol Chamir You know, like imagine if when you're saying Kol Chamir, if you're being Mavatli your Chametz, you're like Kol Chamir, Kol Chamir. It should sound very strange. You're just being Mavatli your Chametz. So if I'm just being Mavatli my Nadarim, if I'm just being Matar my Nadarim and saying, okay, I'm not bound by these Nadarim anymore. What's the like serious tone of Kol Nidre? And why is it first? 
the very first thing that we do on Yom Kippur that sets the tone for all of Yom Kippur starts with Kol Nidre. Okay? So far so good? So we have three questions so far. It's very serious. It's re- first of all, it seems overly serious for the content. The content is just being matur nedarim. And second of all, when something is the beginning of something, that sets the tone for what's to come. Right? Like, if something is... Let's say, chas you had like a, a child that at a very young age... I had this once, not with one of my own children, but a kid that I taught when I was teaching special ed, this kid had the most terrible, terrible affliction. He fell on his head when he was a child, and as a result, he developed what's called language delay. So he would know in his head the answer to a question, but it would take him sometimes 30 seconds, sometimes two minutes, sometimes even five minutes to be able to say it. So I would call him in a class, he would raise his hand, ooh, I know the answer, little fifth grade boy, ooh, I know the answer. I would call him and I'd say, yeah, and he would go like this. And he would get frozen, he couldn't get it out. And so I'd say, I would, Try as gently as I could to say to him, like, you know what? We're going to continue on. As soon as you're ready, you just let us know what the answer is, and we'll go back. I would continue with the lesson, and sometimes five minutes later, he would blurt out, like, Yosef! You know, like, he would, he would blurt out the answer. Because it would literally take him five minutes. When you hurt something in the very beginning of the thing, it has an impact in the future, right? So, if, you, if we're setting the tone, so to speak, for all of Yom Kippur, it's like all of Yom Kippur is in that initial moment of Kol Nidre. And now the rest of it is just like the flowering of that seed. So why is Kol Nidre of all of its philos that we're going to start with? Let's start with Vidoy. Ashamnu, Bagadnu, right? And it's like, especially if you're in yeshivas and you see like, like the really tough guys when they're doing Ashamnu, Bagadnu, it's like they're in the gym. They're like, Ashamnu, Bagadnu. I'm like, calm down. It's like they're benching, you know, like I can bench 180. Ashamnu, Bagadnu. I'm like, you're going to be a cripple by the end of Yontif. You're like, <laughs> see a guy afterwards, Yom Kippur, how was your fast? He's like, I'm so sore. I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> like girls, girls, you see them like, Ashamnu, Bagadnu. <laughs> something in between those two things, right? But it's like the whole of Yom Kippur is like already embedded in Kol Nidre. Why? What's Kol Nidre? Let's start off with like a powerful tefillah. Why it's like Kol Nidre. I want to describe to you a mashal. I believe it's a very powerful mashal. I believe it's a very profound mashal. And I hope you'll come with me on this. It's a little bit long, so stay with me. It's just a mashal. Story is of a young man meets a young woman and he instantly knows She's the one. First date, one and done. Comes back, tells his parents, he's like, I met the girl of my dreams, this is the girl I'm gonna marry. We're gonna go out for a little bit just so I could like, not feel so awkward, but honestly, if you give me the opportunity right now, she's the one. Parents are so excited, he's so excited, she's so excited, it's amazing. They go out for a short amount of time, both of them are just holding back for no real reason, just because of societal norms. But they know that's the one. A month later, they're like, forget it. We're engaged. Right? There wasn't even like a formal proposal. It's just like on one day, they're like, we're engaged. Right? And they're like, we were engaged like two weeks ago. We just gonna, right? Everybody knows. We're engaged. That's it. We're good. Okay? So the relationship starts off with a bang. It's amazing. Beautiful relationship. The engagement comes. So exciting. It pressures like with any engagement. Preparing the wedding, 
they have to get the timing ready. Her sister is pregnant, so they have to push it off a little bit. His brother is expecting a new job. I don't know. Everyone's like, uh... So they're like working around, but finally they get the date, they get the haul. She gets the dress of her dreams. He bought a suit. His mother bought a suit for him. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh... A week before the chasna, they say goodbye to each other. They're not going to see each other for a week. It's like heartbreaking. Like, I can't believe I'm not going to see you over the course of the week. The whole week, he says, I, I know what I'm going to do. Every single day, I'm going to send this girl something. The first day, he sends her flowers. The second day, he has his best friend dress up in a giant bear costume to deliver her a teddy bear. I'm not saying that that's something I did for a friend of mine. I'm just saying randomly as part of a marshal. A marshal is a parable. It's not real. Just that one part of it may or may not be real. The, um, every day he thinks of something. And every single day, again, they're not talking. She sends him a message. And she always sends messages in like the cutest way. Like he's learning one of his svarim and a letter falls out that she had written and planted there beforehand. Like everything is so mushy-gushy like... You know, like, but it's beautiful, but it's like a little bit too much, but it's nice, but it's like, okay, you know? And it's really amazing. And then it comes, the day of the chasna, and she's already in the hall at 10 o'clock in the morning, getting her makeup done, and everything is perfect. And he shows up to the hall at some point, and then they have the pictures separate, of course, because we want to make everybody wait for as long as possible after the chuppah, before the chasna and kala come out, at least an hour and a half, because we're super from... <laughs> And when he finally sees her by the Badekin, it's like their faces are like, ah. Like we haven't seen each other for one whole week. And all of his friends are dancing behind him and all of her friends are crying. And it's like amazing. Like what could be more amazing than that? And he goes and he gives her a bracha because that's what you're supposed to do. Nobody told me that, by the way, when I was a chassan. So when it came to the Bedeckin, I had always just saw the chassanim get up. Nobody told me you're supposed to give your kala a bracha. So I went over there and she's like expecting this beautiful bracha from me. I went over, I'm like, hey, what's up? <laughs> and she's like, really? <laughs> I'm like, what, what were you expecting? <laughs> like that was, that was the beginning. If you understand what I'm saying, that was the beginning right there. Okay, he gives her a beautiful bracha and it's amazing and the dancing is amazing. And Baruch Hashem married, Geshmak. Sheva brachos, they show up casually late an hour late to every single one, again, because we're from, the frumest thing we could do is make Klali Yisrael wait, an hour late to every single one, and everyone's putting on a show for them. Uh, it's amazing. And when you ask this beautiful Kala, how are you doing? She says, amazing. He is amazing. He's a Balmidos par excellence. He, he picks up his socks. He picks up his socks. I know this is, a, this is a big thing when it comes to marriage. You'll learn about this. The greatest frustration... I speak to women all the time. The greatest frustration is, why can't my husband pick up his socks? I don't know what it is about women that that's so bothersome to you. But men, I'll tell you what I do. I'm not embarrassed to say this. I come home, my socks come off, and wherever they are, that's where they be buried. You know, like, I'm not interested in putting them away. I know it's not nice. I know it bothers my wife. This guy, he's amazing. He puts away his socks. He cooks, he cleans, he makes Shabbos. He's a bentaira. He learns. He treats her like a princess. Amazing. The end of the first year, how's your marriage? Well, unbelievable. Unbelievable. You ask him, how's the marriage? Unbelievable. Fast forward. 15 years later, they've got Kanai Nahara, a bunch of kids. He's got a job. She's got a job. 
the trials and tribulations of life have fallen upon them. He's been fired. He's had to find a new job. She's, she has a job. She's not super happy in it, but it kind of pays well, so they need it to support because they're barely making by as it is. The kids are great, Baruch Hashem, but every kid has his challenge. This one is ADHD. This one gets bullied in school. This one is a know-it-all. But they're all wonderful kids. By the way, that was the same kid I was talking about. The all-in-one all kid. Yeah. <laughs> Ask them, how's their marriage? And all of a sudden, it's not amazing anymore. It's good. It's good. It's solid. But the things that never bothered her when they were dating, all of a sudden bother her. Like when they were dating, he did the same exact things. But she was so head over heels in love with him, she didn't even see it. It was like, it's not even there. And now all of a sudden, it's 15 years later, and the same cute things that once upon a time he did, all of a sudden now aren't so cute. And it used to be that she saw him like biting his nails, and she's like, oh my God, it's so cute. He's like so nervous to be around me. And like now, she's like, grow up. Get a little confidence. Like, you can't show up to your job biting your nails. Like, be a man. And he, he loved the way she used to laugh. That cute little laugh that she used to have. She sounds like a squirrel. And now, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, laugh like a normal human being. All of a sudden, the little things grate on each other. And, and again, they don't have a bad marriage. They don't have a bad marriage. But they have fights, sometimes nasty fights. Sometimes they say things that they really don't want to say, that they regret. It's not really what they feel about each other. But sometimes the tension becomes so heightened that she'll say something like, I don't understand how you could be this way. It's like, he's like, woo, that was like, and like he'll say things like, can't you just like be a harder worker? And like, she's already working really hard. And all of a sudden there's like some friction in the marriage. Friction that 15 years ago, if you would have asked them when they were dating, do you think this friction is going to be in your marriage? What do you mean? The perfect relationship. Don't you know how amazing everything is? Fifteen years later, all of a sudden, there's bumps in the road. In an honest moment, in an honest moment, I want to tell you what the couple feels. Here's the word. It's a big word. They feel like they've lost the innocence of their youth. That's the big word. They feel like they've lost their innocence. They feel like the relationship has become corrupted by real life. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could just live in that fantasy? And if you talk to them, they'll talk about those beginning years. They'll talk about those beginning vacations. Before all the pressure started, when the kids were just young and perfect, and the worst thing that the kid could do was stay up all night because the kid was colicky, because the kid was, you know, wasn't feeling well. That was the worst thing the kid could do. They didn't have parent-teacher conferences. They didn't have financial stresses because they were young. How much stress do you have when you're young and you're first newly married? What does an apartment cost for a year? 1200 bucks a month? It's not a lot of money. I know it seems like a lot of money right now, but it's really not a lot of money. $1,200 is not a big deal. So okay, $1,200 a month. They, they, they were young and dumb. They never realized. And they thought in that moment, this is what it is. It's perfect. And then a real life hit, and all of a sudden, they felt like, were we naive? Did, maybe we didn't love each other as much as we thought we did. Right? Because if we loved each other as much as we thought we did, then 15 years later, wouldn't, be, wouldn't we be in that same place? And their friends are going through the same thing. They know their friends are going through the same thing. But they feel like, if only I could recapture the innocence of my youth. If only we could go back. 
and somehow hold on to those beginning moments, wouldn't life be amazing? So they go to a therapist, and the marriage therapist gives them the tip. I'm going to give you the tip now so you can get out ahead of it. If you're in a relationship, lock yourself into this tip because one day it's going to save your marriage. Okay, it's a big one. Vulnerability is the birthplace of connection. Say it again. Vulnerability is the birthplace of connection. And so this is the tip. If this couple will get together after 15 years on their anniversary and instead of going out to eat, instead of going to some fancy restaurant and dressing up and just playing nice, if they go into a room, private room, nobody else is there, and they say to each other, I want to tell you really, really, like no holes barred, I'm going to like put it all out there, I want to tell you really, not what you've done wrong, but what I've done wrong. I want to be absolutely vulnerable, and I want to tell you that over the years, I know I've spoken to you not nicely. I have. I know that I've been in a competition with you, where it was like, I'm awesome and you're really not. I know that I haven't been supportive. I know that I haven't been empathetic. I know that I tried to solve your problems. That's a huge one, especially for the guys. Have, have any of you, if you haven't recommended watching, have any of you ever seen, it's a short three, four minute video called It's Not About the Nail. Yeah, it's an amazing YouTube video. You must watch it. After share, not now, after you get your phones back, take the opportunity, type it in on YouTube. It's Not About the Nail. It's the single greatest guy-girl video of all time. Am I exaggerating? It's amazing. Guys always try to solve girls' problems. A guy says, I know I've done all of that. But he knows, and here's what's critical. The reason why he can be so vulnerable with her is because he knows that at the core of everything, the love that she has for him, the, she, he remembers the love of their youth, the love that she has for him, it will never go away. The bedrock of their relationship is so incredibly strong that no matter what they've done to each other over the last 15 years, all the stupid fights and all the stupid things that they said to each other, he knows that the love is still there. So he's willing to tear it open and go, okay, this is what I've done. What is he asking for? Is he asking for forgiveness? Or does he expect to be forgiven? And the difference is everything. Because if he's asking for forgiveness, it means he's not sure if he's worthy of forgiveness. In other words, to make it a little bit more clear, it's like this. If I know you love me, and I'm willing to put it out there and say, this is what I've done, then the reaction we expect is you're forgiven. If the reaction is, I don't know, I need some time to think about it, what's going to be the feeling that the guy has? Oh my God, did I actually break this? I thought that the love that we had was the love of our youth, that was unbreakable, invincible, unconditional. And now, when I put myself out there, all of a sudden, what's the reaction I get? I don't know. That's scary. That's scary. So if you come in, one second, if you come in to the relationship and you're like, 
I'm saying this because I expect to be forgiven. I expect that together we can work through this. Then the feeling you have when you go in there is nervous because you're about to say some bad things about yourself, but also excited. Why excited? Because you expect that at the end of that very painful conversation, where you really put it all out there on the line, you expect that the feeling you're going to have is the restoration of innocence. That's the goal of that conversation. The goal of that conversation is not to fix the marriage in one day. You know that's not going to happen. You know that it could take months or even years to undo the damage that's been done. After all, a marriage that we spent 15 years beating each other up, it doesn't get solved in a day, and it doesn't get solved in one conversation. We know that. But at least the baseline that we start from is we're in this together. We're innocent. We're back to where we started. Let's build from that place. And now if you want to talk it through and you want to let me know that what I'm doing isn't okay, I'm ready to listen to you. And you are confident in me that I'm, listen, that I'm going to listen. Why? Because the bedrock of our relationship is innocent. Girls, what's the difference between shame and guilt? Guilt means I feel badly about the thing that I did. Shame means if you would know what I did, I would be unworthy of your love and connection. Everybody that I've ever met in my entire life suffers from at least a little bit of shame. It's why we hide. Everybody here in this room, including myself, is two people. There's the person that we show to the world, look at me, this is who I am. That's one version of ourself. And then there's this other version. I would never tell you who I really am because if you knew who I really am, I'd be unworthy of love and connection. You wouldn't want to know me. You wouldn't want to see me. But if we're innocent, so then there's no more shame. I might feel guilty. I might feel regretful. I might feel remorseful. But shame? Why would I ever be ashamed with you? To you, I can bear my soul. Now tell me, which relationship is more real? The relationship of 15 years ago, when they first got married, where they were so lovey-dovey, head over heels, couldn't get off with the phone with each other. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. Oh, I miss you so much. I can't believe it was only going to be a week, but it's like forever, right? Which relationship is more real? I'm not making, I mean, obviously I'm making fun of it. I'm not diminishing the value of such a cute, lovey-dovey, 20-year-old relationship, right? It's beautiful. It's, got, it's nice to be 20, 21, 22 and engaged. It's wonderful. Which relationship is more real? That one? Or the one that's 15 years later when they actually sit in that room and say, okay, this is what I've done. Which one is more real? What do you think? Is there anybody that wants the first relationship over the second one? The reason why nobody ever raises their hand to that question is because... Well, yeah, you'll probably get both in your life. But if you had to choose... Because it's not true. Exactly right. Because the relationship of the guy and girl that just met each other and fell head over heels in love with each other, there's truth to it. That connection that they feel is real, right? Marriage is the reunion of the souls. When we say you found your soulmate, we mean it, right? That's how sometimes you just know. You ask people, how do you know? I knew. How? I have no idea. And, and that, by the way, that's right. Because imagine, what words could you possibly fill in? Try to finish this sentence. I love him because what? Because he provides for our family. He's not a bank. And if, and if that's the reason you love him, then you love money. You don't love him. 
Imagine if I said to my wife, I love you because you're such a good cook. I mean, empirically, that's obviously true, right? But like, then I don't love you, I love food. I love her because she's such a great mother. Then I love my kids, not her. I could hire a nanny for the same money, probably cheaper. <laughs> you can't answer the question of why you love someone. Nobody ever has and nobody ever will. By the way, the best we can do when we try to explain to people why we love someone is we, we, we make music out of it, we write poetry, we, we create great art because we can't put it into words because it's something soulful, right? So that 20-year-old 20 20 kid, that connection is so beautiful. It's a soulful connection. But nobody ever chooses it. Why not? Because there's something greater than being innocent. The greatest thing is not innocence. The greatest thing is the restoration of innocence. And here's what that looks like. Meaning, after 15 years with each other, after 25 years with each other, after 35 years with each other, through all of the garbage that we've put each other through, we can still find each other in the dark. So it's like Rav Levi Yitzchak Mibredichev said, we're all playing a game of hide-and-go-seek with God, and I'm finding him everywhere. And the greatest bracha that you can give a chassan and kala is you will play hide-and-seek with each other. But can you find each other in all of the darkness? It's much more beautiful, it's much more profound to find each other in the darkness than it is to find each other in the light. It's not a big deal when you see someone in the street and you're not looking for them and all of a sudden they're there. It's great, it's nice to see your friend, right? But imagine if you were looking for them and then you found them. You know how incredible that is? That's like the Kala that's like 33 years old and she's dated 500 guys and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, when like all hope is lost, the perfect guy is delivered to her doorstep. And she's like, I have been looking for you since I'm 19 years old. I can't believe I finally found you. Her simcha is so much greater than the girl who got married at 19 because she found him in the dark. So I'm going to tell you a story. It's a story that you all know, but it's a story that nobody ever pays attention to. It's the story of Adam and Chava. When Adam and Chava were first created, they were created as one, back to back. And then God splits them. And he says, okay, become one. We were just one. Why would, you, why would God split Adam and Chava when they were one and say, I want you to become one again? We were one. Same exact question, just in a different place. Okay, Same exact question. Before we were born, where was our neshama? In Shemayim. We come down to this world, and what's the goal? To go, let's say, this is the goal, I don't think it's true, but let's say the goal is, most people think the goal is, go back up. If the whole goal was to go back up, God could have just left us up there to begin with. Same thing like Adam and Chava. If we were up there, connected with God, why come down to this world just to go back up to God? And the answer is, and this is critical, because the goal of this world is not to come back to God up there. It's to bring God down here. And it's the same thing. Adam and Chava were created back to back. So it's nice that they were one, but they weren't facing each other. They never chose to be with each other. So in order for Adam and Chava to have a true relationship, what do they need? They need separation. Or to put it a little bit differently, it's not impressive to stay married if you can't get divorced. If there's no halacha of gittin, then what's the value of the fact that we stayed married? The value of marriage is this. When all hope was lost, when we had every reason in the world to get divorced, we stayed loyal to each other and we worked through. 
Just like the soul that says, I came down to this world, and in this world, God, there were times, if we're being honest, I wanted nothing to do with you. I wasn't excited to daven. I wasn't excited to show up to Shurim, especially not at 7.45 on a Thursday night. I've got better places to be. I wasn't excited to say Tehillim. I wasn't excited to learn. A million things. And we stayed loyal to God anyway. What's more exceptional? Being a soul up in Shemayim or being a soul down here? It's much more exceptional to be a soul down here. The fact that Chava and Adam were split makes their relationship incredible. They used to be one. They know that the love is there. But they have to find each other in their separation. I want to tell you why most people don't like Yom Kippur. Most people don't think Yom Kippur is an amazing day. Not only do they not think it's an amazing day, they think it's a painful day. Far from being a simchadik day, it's the worst day. Most people look at it like this. I'm going to be in shul all day, which is already like ridiculous. The women's section, especially since we're speaking to women, the women's section is always a quarter of the size of the men's section, even though there are at least as many women there as there are men, but somehow they expect us to sit like sardines. The air conditioning in the men's section is beravchus, and they all have space. The air conditioning in the women's section, somehow it's like we're huddled together. The, the body heat is like intense. The air conditioning, that fan is about all that you have. I'm sitting and saying words from a sitter half the time. I don't know what I'm saying. There's the chazan who's schlepping on forever, who seems to think that this is an opera concert. You know this guy? He loves being up there. He loves making monosyllabic words into polysyllabic words. Every word, oh, if it could be stretched, he's stretching it. And it's like you're looking at your watch. I had a cousin who wasn't an Orthodox Jew. He used to come to shul with us on Yom Kippur. He used to play this game. He would look at his machzer, and as we were turning the pages, he would evaluate how many pages we had left, and then he would determine what that was in food. So he would look at it and go, slice of bread. <laughs> then a little bit later he'd go, couple slices of cheese. You know, like, it was always like getting smaller. He was evaluating, basically, you're hungry, you're tired, you're like the Statue of Liberty. Give me you're hungry, you're tired, you're poor, yearning to breathe free, right? This is what it feels like on Yom Kippur. And finally, Ne'ilah comes and Baruch Hashem, and then the question is, how long is davening for you? Oh, we had a nice break this year. It was an hour and a half break. So you talk more about the break than you do about the davening. And you know why? Because we don't feel very innocent. And the truth of the matter is, we're not confident that in going back to God on our anniversary, because that's what it was. Rosh Hashanah was the anniversary. That was the day we were born. Right? Rosh Hashanah is the sixth day of creation. So ten days later, God says, let's have it out. You've been, a, you've been alive for a while. Let's just put it all on the table. Most of us do not want to do that. Most of us don't want to come and say to God, here's the list of things that I did. And you'll hear, you'll hear reasons why. Like, doesn't God already know? That's like saying, doesn't my wife already know that I love her? You ever hear that, that nonsense? Guys say that. This girl, she, I understand what's wrong with her. She wants me to say I love her like all the time. Doesn't she know that I love her? Doesn't she know I'm dedicating my whole life to her? Yeah, of course she knows that. But that doesn't mean you don't say it. Rebbe, doesn't she know that I already made these mistakes? She needs me to go and list them? Yeah, because that's what relationships are like. Relationships mean we sit down and we put it all on the table. But here's the catch. Nobody ever will be vulnerable if they feel that they're just going to be slapped in the face. Nobody would show up to shul and say, Ashamnu, bagadnu, gazalnu, dibarnu, dofi, with any sense whatsoever of like, 
authenticity of like, I actually regret the things that I did. If the reaction on the other side is, I don't know, let me see. Nobody would ever do that, just like our couple. But here's the catch. If you know that it's much better to be in a relationship where there's dark times and you work through them, then Yom Kippur is one of the greatest days on the calendar. Let's go back to our original question. Tuba'av is the greatest yantif. Why is Tuba'av the greatest yantif? Why is it the greatest simcha? Because it's they first met. She goes out in the field dressed in white. Why is she dressed in white, girl? Because she is innocent. And innocence is beautiful. And the guy comes along and he looks at her and he says, You, you're the one I've been waiting for. And it's this amazing moment. That's why they dance in a circle. The circle has been closed. There's a reunion of the soul. It's beautiful. But there is a second day. It's not the day that they meet. It's the day that they re-meet. Meeting is awesome. Re-meeting is amazing. And if we had to choose, we would always choose the relationship that we can find each other in the dark. So Yom Kippur is an amazing day. But there's a problem. We can come to God and we can say, Ashamnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu, and we can leave Yom Kippur feeling innocent. Except there's one problem. It's a problem that we haven't mentioned, but we're going to mention it right now. And you all know this problem. You've all thought this before. I know I think it every single year. Imagine the following. They have their 15-year anniversary. They go to that room. They have it out. And the guy says, I commit myself to speaking more pleasantly with you. I commit myself to it. And now a year goes by and they're having their 16th year anniversary. And again, they get in that room and he says to her, Dibarnu Dofi, I did it again. I didn't speak pleasantly to you. I commit myself to speaking more pleasantly to you this year. And then they have their 17th year anniversary and they get back in that room and he says, Dibarnu Dofi, I didn't speak pleasantly to you. I commit myself to speaking pleasantly to you. And then the 18th year and the 19th year and the 20th year. After a while, what's the wife going to say? Don't bore me with your apologies. I've heard it before. Everybody that I've ever met struggles with this question. You want me to come to Yom Kippur and you want me to feel innocent? You want me to feel amazing? You want me to feel like our relationship is restored? How could that be? I know I'm going to do the same Averis again. What's the proof that I'm going to do the same Averis again? I did them last year. And I'm probably going to do them again next year. How many people here think... Raise your hand if you think this. I hope nobody raises their hand. How many people here think that this year they're not going to say one word of Lashon Hara? Rosh Hashanah was just a couple of days ago. On Rosh Hashanah, I thought to myself, this year I really have to work on my Lashon Hara. I keep catching myself saying Lashon Hara, which is probably Lashon Hara to say about myself right now. You really think you could feel innocent if you're going to do the same thing over and over again? Why bother? How many people have ever thought that? This is ridiculous. I'm going to keep saying I'm sorry. Wouldn't you lose patience with yourself? In fact, how many people have heard this schmooze so often that even right now you're tuning me out? Another Rav who's coming and saying, even though you, you're going to do it again in the future, still it's important to say I'm sorry. How many people have heard that before? You're turning me out because you've heard it before. We do the same things over and over again. Let's switch places for one moment.
instead of talking about a husband-wife relationship, let's talk about a parent-child relationship. And now I'm going to tell you an actual story. Story is, I'm going to change only small details so that nobody should figure out who it is, even though I don't think there's anybody here that could. Stories of a young man, somebody I knew, a couple years younger than me, not that far off, who in a very difficult time in his life turned to alcohol as a teenager. And the first time that his family found out that he had a substance abuse issue was when in his shul there was a Vasika minion. And you know, in some of these shuls, especially in his neighborhood, the older men like to make a lachaim after davening. You ever hear of these people? These old men, they're like 90 years old, drinking like hardcore potato vodka every morning. You know why they live forever? There's no blood left inside of them. It's all slivovitz. There's no, it's kichel and slivovitz and sponge cake. That's what they're made of, yeah? These people will never die. I, the same, I go back to the white shul. I see these same people from when I was a kid. They were old then. They're ancient now. <laughs> the first time his parents ever found out that he had a problem was when after Vasikin they went to get the kiddush and he had drank all of it and he was passed out in the shul kitchen. He had broken in overnight into the shul. That was the first time. And it slowly deteriorated. And some substances went to other substances. And you know how it goes. It's like, yeah, but that's not really a substance. I don't have to get into it right now. You all know what I'm talking about. That's not really drugs. Right? That's just this. That's just that. And then it was like more and more and more and more. And the first time he went into rehab, the second time he went into rehab, I have no idea what they're ever saying, but it's amazing. Oh, it's funeral oh, okay. <laughs> That's not funny. They say it about a lot of things. So, his parents, his parents, they kept sending him back to rehab. He always came out of rehab and said the same thing. This time it's different. This time I really think it's going to stink. The parents could have said, I've heard it all before. But they didn't. Every time he fell, they were there for him. Every time they fell, again, it was tough love. A lot of times they weren't just like loving and giving. Sometimes we need to have din. Sometimes we need to have some strict justice. And they definitely gave that to him. And eventually he sobered up. And today, he's a married man, doing good things with his life. He leaves a, leads a very different life than his parents. He's, no, he's not a practicing, observant Jew. He's proud of his Judaism, but, you know, it's not like, it's not his thing, so to speak. I had a very difficult conversation with this young man's father many, many years ago. And he told me something I don't think I'll ever forget in my life. He said, no matter how many times my son messes up, no matter how many times... He comes to me and he says, I fell off the wagon. When he's ready for help, we're always going to help him. His father is not a man of means. I don't know if you know this, but rehab costs a tremendous amount of money. But if my son comes to me and he says, this time I need help and I think it's going to stick. This is rock bottom. You got to do that because it's your kid. 
So it struck me when he said that, because I was like, I knew this guy didn't have money, and I knew that rehab was costing him $50,000 a pop. And the guy went to rehab five, six, seven times. It wasn't a simple process. And thank God, today he's doing great. But how do you do that, right? How do you dip into your life savings, dip into your retirement fund, and say, okay, everything I've been working for for the last 25 years so that one day I could retire, it's wiped out because you need to go to rehab for three months. How do you do that? That's like, a, like if you're rich, I get it. But if you're like a struggling person in your life and you've eked away a little bit of money and that's what you're going to live on for the rest of your life, how do you do that? The answer is so profound. If that's your kid, that's what you do. If your kid comes to you and he says, this time it's going to be different, you have to keep the faith. You have to hold on to hope because what other choice do you have? We always think, why would God believe me? Why should I be worthy of innocence? I've messed it up so many times before. But I want you to stop for a moment. Don't be 18 or 19 years old just for a moment. Be 45. Be 45, 50 years old. If it's your 18 or 19-year-old daughter that comes to you and says, this time it'll be different, is there anybody in this room that says, okay, I'll wipe out my bank account just to help you? Is there anybody that wouldn't do that for their kid? The problem is we think our dad isn't going to do that for us. Amr of Akiva. All you have to do is come to God and say, Kol Nidre. All the Nidarim, all of the binds that I had that shackled me down, that said, this is who I am, I'm releasing myself. I'm a new man. I'm a new man. Your dad could say, I've heard it all before, but no dad ever does. They might say that to give you tough love. But at the end of the day, if you come to your father and you say, I'm going to change, I need help. Every dad in the world falls for it every time. And we'll fall for it as many times as we need to. You know why? That's the love that we have for our child. The challenge of Yom Kippur is not on God's side of the equation. God is there ready to forgive. Vulnerability is the birthplace of connection. You're not coming and wondering whether God is going to forgive you or not. He will forgive you because the relationship is unconditional. It's essential. It's real. That's not the question. The question we have is, why should we be forgiven? And the answer is, because that's what parents do for children. And if you think to yourself that that's not true, ask yourself this. In the hardest times of my life, who would be there for me? And if you're wondering if it's your parents, I guarantee you this. As tough as your relationship might be with them, your parents will be the ones that are there for you. I'll leave you off with this thought. Imagine the following scenario. Your father gives you 50 bucks. He says, go to the mall. I know you're going at night, so here's the deal. I can't pick you up. I can't pick you up. And I, for whatever reason, you don't have Uber on your phone or Lyft or Get or any of those things, okay? So I'm giving you 50 bucks, 30 bucks to spend. It's going to cost you 20 bucks for a cab back. But here's the thing. When the mall closes, it's in a bad neighborhood. I don't want you in that mall. Take a cab back. Don't spend all $50 on a dress because you're going to need 20 bucks to get a cab. And now you go into this store and the perfect outfit. I don't even know what these things mean. I'm just trying to make it relevant for you. The perfect <laughs> outfit is there. And guess what? It's 50 bucks. So you're the type of person that says, spend first, ask forgiveness later, right? 
So you spend the 50 bucks and it's beautiful and you're like with your friends, you're like, oh my God, this is like, it's perfect. I don't know why girls hold it. Like, I've never in my life held pants up to myself and I'm like, I think that looks good. Yeah, I never, I've never done that. I don't like hold a shirt up in its plastic thing and go, <laughs> I see girls, like I see my daughters like parading around with clothing in front of them. I'm like, you know it goes on you, right? It's like scotch taped on on the front. And you're like parading around the mall and you're like, isn't it amazing? You're twirling in the whole nine yards. Whatever you crazy kids do these days. And then it's eight o'clock at night and the mall is closing. By the way, the mall closes at eight in this marshal, yes. It's eight o'clock at night and the mall is closing and you're in that bad neighborhood and all of a sudden you've got no money to go home. So you ask your friends, can I bump some money off you? Guess what? They've got no money either. And now it's dark outside. It's not a safe neighborhood. And you're looking around and you're going, these are not the people I'm supposed to be hanging out with. Don't be racist. I was watching. I was watching. Don't be racist. I'm joking. I'm joking. So who do you call? It's funny that you made that joke because in my head I also thought that. Yeah. Who do you call in that moment? You call your dad. And when you call your dad, it'll probably sound something like this. I told you. Because dads love to do that, right? It's like, uh, it's, I got to make a bracha on the geschmack of I told you. I told you not to spend that money. I had an important meeting. I couldn't leave. And then he hangs up the phone, tells the people he's in a meeting with, my daughter did a really dumb thing and I have to go pick her up. <laughs> and then he comes. And it's awkward in the car. <laughs> because he has to give you that speech. And you know what that speech sounds like? I told you, do you know how important this meeting was? And this is the meeting that supports you and all those dresses you like to buy, right? It's like the guilt is just massive. But at the end of the day, your father came. You know why? Because as frustrated as he is with you, the love that he has for you is much greater than the frustration. And if you won't call your dad in that moment, your dad would be much more upset at you. If you don't call your father and say, I messed up and I need your help, your dad would be like, why didn't you call me? I thought you were going to be upset. Of course I'm going to be upset. But you still have to call. Because otherwise, how can I help you? So the question is, come Tuesday night, will you make that call? Are you willing to be vulnerable? Are you willing to put it out there and say to God, are you my dad? Because I messed up this year and I'm asking you for help. And if you don't believe that Avichem Shabashamayim is waiting for you, the problem is not on God's side of the equation. The problem is that we don't have the faintest inkling of how much God loves us.